This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guests consist of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk, is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom for an ETF sponsor. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and a Senior Advisor to Wisdom Tree. We're going to hopefully get uh, Professor Siegel. He's traveling back from Toronto, got caught up in a snowstorm, and uh, we're going to hopefully c- catch him for some commentary a little bit later in the show. I should just note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services, Professor Siegel, Senior Advisor, and our discussion is not tied to the office of investment products and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. Really interesting show today. We often talk a lot about what's happening the day-to-day swings of the market, equities, bonds, currencies. Uh, today we have a, a show focused on farmland, investing in farmland. We're going to have two interesting guests. Uh, the first segment of the program, we'll be, we'll be talking with Paul Pittman, uh, who works for, he's the executive chairman, chief executive officer of Farmland Partners, Inc. Uh, second part of the show, we're talking with uh, Brandon Zick, who I met at a conference earlier last year in in, in August, um, and he focuses on private investments in farmland. Um, but for the first part of the show, Paul, welcome to our program. Thank you. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about um, your background and what got you uh, towards um, sort of starting and founding the the uh, Farmland Partners Inc., the the Farmland Real Estate Investment Trust that that you guys uh, have there. Sure. Yes. Uh, thank you. Uh, Farmland Partners is a New York Stock Exchange listed REIT. We own around 165,000 acres of farmland across the United States in 17 different states. 110 separate tenants. Our business model is basically to be a landlord, not to be farmers. Um, I founded the business uh, back in 2014, and it is a successor business to my own private farmland investing business, which I had uh, started back in the mid-1990s. So I've been, you know, acquiring farmland and investing in it as an asset class uh, for about uh, 20-some years at this point. And so what was the, the motivation, uh, perhaps tax-related, or how did you think about why creating a, a REIT structure for this? I mean, a lot, there's not, when I, you know, you look at the Real Estate Investment Trust, there's a lot of traditional REITs out there, but there's really maybe, is I don't know, maybe only two farmland REITs. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, why did you yeah think there's, about really, that? there's really two farmland REITs. Um, uh, the, the REIT structure, you know, what a REIT does is it small d democratizes real estate ownership. And so we, you know, we think the REIT structure is a great way for relatively modest scale investors or institutions who want the liquidity of the public market to invest in farmland. Uh, and so that's why we founded a REIT. Um, obviously, there are uh, private uh, investment vehicles that focus in the asset class too. Um, you know, if you're a big enough investor, they make quite a bit of sense. 
but for the smaller investor, uh, you know, public market structure uh, gives you some protections and some daily liquidity that you wouldn't get in a private structure. Yeah, and when you when you think about the traditional real estate investment trust, you tend to think about yield and income, um, probably because all the REITs have to pay out a, a big percentage of their their cash flow, their earnings as dividends. And now REIT, you know, the traditional real estate yields have come down. And I, I was looking at um, your REIT, and it looks like dividend yields today on my Bloomberg screen about six percent. Um, maybe talk about you know what the cash flows, you know, the the growth profile as you get the dividend comes for this current six percent yield. But how do you think about growth opportunities? Opportunities for what you know you're investing in. How do you think about the growth profile of, of what you're trying to achieve with farmland partners? Yeah, so so farmland as an asset class is an incredibly gr- good asset class in terms of its long-term returns and its stability. Um, that being said, it is a incredibly misunderstood asset class, and and it's really misunderstood for a couple of, of really simple to understand reasons. Reason number one is that most of the volatility that you're reading about and the sort of negative uh, tone about production agriculture that you would see in the newspaper today, most of that pain is suffered by the individual farmer. You know, we're a landlord. Uh, You know, we don't, you know, the daily operation P&L of the farmer is the farmer's issue. We're We're a landlord. And obviously, if times are difficult in a given sector of the ag economy, row crop, corn and soybeans would be the sector that's not doing so well right now, um, our rents will gradually uh, come down and be hurt in that environment, but very gradually. Let me give you an example. In the last three or four years, corn prices have probably dropped by 50%. Per- um, of where they were, certainly by 30%, depending on the region of the country you're in. And our same-to-store sales number in terms of rents is only down about 7%. So much less you know, volatility for the landlord. Then the second point that is that farmland compared to other real estate asset classes is almost entirely the non-depreciable asset of land itself. And when I use depreciation in this context, I mean, you know, it's economically not losing value through time like a building does because the building has to be repaired and so on and so forth. And so the stability of the underlying asset class, you know, my, just because my rents come down a little bit, the underlying asset values haven't changed. In fact, they may still be going up. And the re- you know, people say to me, how could that be true? But the reason it's true is the land itself is a 50-year capitalization model based on people's long-term expectations of global food demand and farmland scarcity. That just doesn't change very much. That's kind of always getting a little better over time. Rents are, as I said, slightly more volatile themselves. Yeah, so it's very interesting. So you think about, you know, you won't get the, if, if, if crop prices surge, you're not going to get the sort of immediate bang that you would get from owning the, the direct agriculture. But you're, so you have a stable rental income stream, but you're basically, your long-term appreciation is based on the farmland actually appreciating because you own the, you own the assets, you own the land. We own the land. Yeah, let, and let me give you a couple statistics on this. And it shocks people when they hear it. The 50-year appreciation CAGR for farmland in the United States is 6%. 
Okay, it's got the, it's got six percent per annum appreciation on farmland on the last fifty year average, and there's a little bit of volatility in that. But frankly, other than the mid nineteen eighties, which was a real farm crisis, um, not very much volatility. If you look at total returns on an unlevered basis to the asset class, total returns in the last fifty years are around eleven percent. That beats the S and P five hundred. With, and it and it you know it beats virtually any other asset class. The reason uh, you know, but but what's even more important is the volatility of those returns are lower than all the other asset classes, and the returns are higher. Um, this is what this is the you know, and the reason for that is really simple to understand if you just step back and think big picture. Food production is a basic human need. You know, after air and water, the next thing we as, a, as humans need is food, and high-quality farmland is scarce. That's led to just incredible long-term returns and long-term stability of value in the asset class. Now, the stock market, to be blunt, misunderstands that. You know, we today trade at a deep, deep discount to our underlying net asset value, I personally, you know, continue to buy back stock. Our company has a buyback program in place um, because of that separation between private market value and, and the perception in the public markets. But, you know, that's, that, that often happens in new asset classes. So we, you know, we're trying to make lemons out of lemonade. We'll just buy our stock back if it's undervalued. How do you, now, if for investors listening in, um, how do you actually f- you know, find that nav, the NAV that, and, and the discount, like, where do you think that discount is today? And I don't, you know, I you often don't think of REITs as being able to do buybacks because they have to, um, you know, because of the requirements to pay out a certain percentage of their income as, as dividends. It, do you do that through debt? Or like, how do you oh, think yeah, about we, ba- we basically, will you know, we'll sell assets to buy back stock because if, if we can sell an asset at fair value in yeah. the markets and buy the stock back at a 30% discount, why yeah. not? Okay. So, so we, so in my, in my quarterly conference calls, we will report what we generally believe is net asset value in our corporate supplemental. Okay. Uh, there is a, the, the data necessary to do a cap rate based view of asset value. Um, and so, you, you know, there's, uh, you know, our, our perspective is that if you, if you went and liquidated the company and so, you know, paid off the debt and distributed the money to shareholders, you'd be in the neighborhood of $12 a share. And we're trading today at about, you know, 840 or 850. Hmm. Um, and if you, you know, if you look at the, you know, if you look at the form fours, you will see that I personally as the CEO and chairman, you know, are putting, putting my money where my mouth is. And I, you know, I already own 7% of the company, but I'm a I'm a true believer in the in the fundamental underpinnings of the asset class. Well, that's uh, that's great. We're talking with Paul Pittman of Farmland Partners Inc., um, making a, a bullish case on the NAV of the farmland REIT, and it's a really interesting case. I'm glad we connected to to get to talk about this. It. It's, it's a very interesting conversation. Um, how do you think? You know, a lot of people in terms of the current macro environment and, you know, this, the equities have been, in some ways, we had a little bit of volatility in the, in the U.S. this year because people were worried inflation was coming back and so people are looking for these alternatives and whether they think about commodities and they, the way that a lot of people invest in commodities today, they invest in these futures contracts and there's a cost to the contango in some of these uh, futures, but you are basically got the 6% cash flow plus the appreciation and now you're saying you got a discount to NAV. It's sort of a, a few things coming on together. How how do you think about the, the longer term trends of commodity prices generally, though, and for some of the agriculture and 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 who are your tenants? Who are the typical tenants that? Yeah, so, 
So your typical your typical tenant, I'll start with that. Your typical tenant is a large, successful family farm operation. Um, you know, one of the kind of misnomers uh, or misunderstandings in the industry, there's just not a lot of quote unquote corporate farming in in row crop agriculture or you know fruits and nuts. Um, you know, the big corporations in agriculture, uh, you know, like John Deere supplies tractors, Monsanto supplies seed and chemicals. The farmers themselves, uh, you know, unless you think of an, LL, an LLC with two or three brothers, in, uh, you know, in it as quote-unquote corporate farming, there just isn't corporate farming. I, I, I always am kind of shocked when I read this. Uh, these are family businesses that are, you know, pretty good scale and pretty uh, pretty successful, but they're, uh, you know, they're not, uh, you know, mega corporations by any means. Um, so that's the typical tenant. They're they're stable. They've been in business a long time, and they're, you know, experts in the science of food production of whatever product it is they grow. Um, in terms of... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot the first part of your question. What was the... Uh, well, inter- so you mentioned a little bit about the types of tenants, and how, how do you think about just the general commodity prices? Oh, commodity, yes, commodities. So, th- again, commodity prices, they're easy to see because they're in our face every day. You know, the Chicago Board of Trade publishes the corn price and publishes a soybean price and a wheat price. But this is not the fun- commodity price is not the fundamental driver of farmland value that people think it is, and what drives long-term value of farmland is revenue per acre and profit per acre. And when you think about, and you know, obviously profit per acre is really the number, but but I'll talk about revenue for a second just because it's even simpler. Through time. What's led land value to go up is not that corn price increased. It's that the volume of corn produced on that acre increased, or the volume of soybeans or wheat. And at the same time, the productivity gains in terms of efficiency for American farmers have continued to increase literally now for decades. Um, and you've got these different waves of increased productivity, whether it was mech- you know moving from animal-based power to, you know, the reason that we call it horsepower is it used to be horsepower now, but then people had tractors. And then there was the introduction of chemistry into agriculture. Uh, and then there was uh, the introduce, introduction of uh, genetic modifications to seed. And obviously there's a lot of, you know, disagreement about that, but it certainly led to the increased production of calories on a, on a, with smaller inputs. And then and then now you're, you know, you're really mining big data and technology to improve efficiency. So what drives this land value increase isn't commodity price. You know, in, in fact, since there's a billion people in the world still starving, the win for us as a society is increasing the profitability of farmers without changing the actual price of the grains because it makes the, you know, the truly poor people of the world who are the starving people more able to buy the product. Maybe we could talk about that that productivity because it's one of these big, I think, global conundrums here is in in some ways in just the economic statistics, people have been wondering about where is productivity that's showing up in the data at sort of a high the U.S. economy GDP level. But if you think about also just the overall trends in the economy is, in, I don't know if you go back 100 years ago, what percentage of our the U.S. economy was farmers, but we've gone from a huge percent of a quarter or more of our economy as farmers to now, what, 2% and we're actually exporting? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tiny. 
I mean, the the number of people involved in the production in the in the direct production of food in the United States is is just so tiny. I I, I used to know the number. It's you know, I mean, I I, for, I forget exactly what it is, but it, there there are there are you know think about how few farmers there are yeah. and and you know one of the you know one of the things that again you know uh, folks kind of misunderstand unless you're really steeped in the business the, the USDA you know tracks and calls quote unquote anybody that has more than a thousand dollars a year of potential revenue from food production a farmer but that number at $1,000 a year includes a lot of people who have a, you know, their farming is to some degree their second career. It's almost a hobby. And they're, you know, they're making their primary living doing something else. And so when you take that group of people out and you go look at the people who have gross sales of, say, a half a million dollars or more, it is a small, small percentage of our society in, engaged in farming full time. And that group of people feeds the rest of us, uh, and and it's a it's a fantastic success story from the U.S. economy. You know, agriculture is again one of the one of the key industries and in one of the few industries in the country where we have a positive balance of payments with the rest of the world. We export more food than we import. Um, it's you know it, it is in my view really one of the one of the leading you know success stories from an industrial perspective. Uh, you know for the nation. And and it's you know it'll continue to be and and these productivity you know the productivity gains in terms of the efficiencies uh, are very dramatic. And, and so, how do you think about investing around that? I've seen in, you've been in the public market space for um, maybe since you said 2014, and so I see you know the acres that you've had as a company public company profile have gone up from 46,000 acres to 166,000 acres in really three to four years, so a 51% CAGR as you talk about. It. Like, how are you thinking about continuing to acquire land to to build the value for your REIT? Yeah, we, we you know we 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 manage and grow the company, um, you know, like the long-term sort of private investors in farmland that we really are. You know, we think about can we buy a piece of land uh, for less than our cost of capital and get a good return on it, um, and that you know, and that's how we grow the business. I mean, the, the business is way bigger than you might think. There's around thirty billion dollars of farmland transactions per year in the United States. So the sort of a ability to acquire and build a large portfolio of land is is uh, is pretty high, but at the same time, there's very little turnover in terms of an absolute sense because there's you know only about that thirty billion would be about two percent of total asset value in the country of, of farmland in the entire United States, it, you know is is changing hands every year, but. You know, the asset class today is owned by institutions, you know, people like myself. Uh, in your intro, you mentioned Brandon Zick. Uh, you know, I know him and, and the, the company he works for. You know, people uh, people that are institutional in any nature only own about a percent and a half of the total farmland base in the United States. So it's an asset class uh, with uh, kind of ripe for institutional investment, Um you know, farms today are generally owned by farmers or they're owned by people who a couple generations ago, as families were farmers and they have inherited them. That That's, you know, most of the owners today. 
And so do you think your your growth profile, is it, look, you're looking, I mean, do you think you can continue to compound at 51% growth oh, rates? Oh, yeah, we, we think we, would in, we will continue to increase our scale through time. Uh, obviously, we're not, you know, the, the, the depressed equity value, as we discussed a few moments ago, I'm not going to raise equity to right, do it. Right. Um, and there's a limit to how much leverage we'd want on, on the company. But, but, I mean, we think that'll correct itself. You know, the, the headlines are negative on production agriculture right now. Uh, I think, frankly, overly negative, but but you know they are what they are, and it's caused uh, it's caused as a new asset class, it's caused our stock price to be hurt, um, in uh, you know, uh, frankly, but but the asset values are continuing to appreciate. The market's going to figure that out hmm. uh, over time. That you know they always do. How, how do you look at farming around the world? I mean, they're definitely, it's not a unique story of, of needing to get productivity to feed the world, as you said. Um, is your focus on the U.S. today, do you ever see becoming more globally focused? Um, we, we think the opportunity in the U.S. is so strong and so good that we would tend to shy away from places outside the U.S. Um, for a couple of reasons. Um, First, it's a dollar—you know—it's a dollarized industry in particular. Uh, so once you leave the U.S., you actually have currency risk because almost all the products across the world are priced in dollars. Uh, and if you end up in a—you know—if you end up in a Brazil or somewhere else, you're taking substantial currency risk. The second thing for us is as land investors. Um, we want to make sure we're only in a nation where property rights are well-defined and, you know, not going to be attacked uh, by the government or by other citizens or society generally. Now, you know, Canada, Australia, New Zealand certainly meet that, you know, cross that hurdle as well as the United States. But we just think the opportunity in the U.S. is is so good and you avoid the currency risk issue. Um, But we would consider eventually going to, and many institutional investors have, going to a place like Australia, which has some good production agriculture, or New Zealand or Canada. but uh, generally, we'll we'll, st- we'll stay in those developed economies with kind of a strong ag heritage, um, and at least for now, we're we're focused purely on the U.S. Very good. We're talking with Paul Pittman of, of Farmland Partners, a, a farm REIT, uh, about the unique opportunity presented in farmland, how they're investing around that, um, and as, as I look through, you know, where you're focused around the country. Um, you know, a lot of it um, seems like a West Coast uh, Corn Belt or the top two areas. Is that um, is there other diversification areas that you're looking to invest around? Do you think it's going to continue to be a similar geographic profile? Well, if, if you you know, we take the view that you want to build a. I mean, we believe very, very strongly in diversification and what we're doing. We're not we're not trying to, to necessarily pick the winners and losers among specific crops or specific regions of the country. We want you know, diversification, because we, our view is, is that global food demand will continue to rise. And that's our, that's our kind of key driving theme. Not that organic products or, or, you know, are going to be way better than everything else, or fruits and vegetables are way better than, than grains. These things ebb and flow. I mean, I've done this for 20 to 25 years. And if I had done that uh, through time, unless I was a really good market timer, I would have been caught on the wrong side as many times as I've been caught on the on the right side. So we take a, a, a really diversification view. So if you do that, you're gonna you're gonna run a portfolio that's about 
65 to 75 percent the primary grains and 25 to 35 percent specialty crops. Think wine grapes, nuts like almonds, uh, all the vegetables, you know, those would be the specialty crops. And so, and the reason for that is on an output basis, if you looked at revenue from production agriculture on a nationwide basis, that's the approximate relationship between the primary row crops, think Midwest Corn Belt, versus California specialty crops. And the specialty crops, of course, are in other places than just California, but to give you an example. So that's the portfolio we built. That's the portfolio we want to stick with. That leads you to have the largest amount of your investment in the Corn Belt, which is for us mostly Illinois and Nebraska, or in California. Those will be those those kind of the corn the central part of the country in the Corn Belt uh, and California will kind of always be sort of one and two, and then you will add in the other big producing regions of the country, um, which are the Delta, which is Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi area, or the southeastern United States will be sort of the rest of most of the rest of what you invest in, and then there will be a smattering of specialty crops in Florida, which is, you know, citrus generally, or vegetables, could be wine grapes, uh, or other hops, or some other specialty uh, 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 product in the Pacific Northwest, you know, so on and so forth. But that's basically our our model and how we approach it. Very interesting. I, I could see I'm I'm supporting your specialty crops with the uh, the millennial generation. You say the young people. I'm doing a lot of almonds, avocados, pistachios, all those things on your list. I'm a I'm I'm helping you out there. Absolutely. And and they're <laughs> and look, those are great those are great products. And if you you know the typical American diet. To be honest, we need to shift more to to, to more of those things. Almond milk. Probably you know more of a plant based and a little less of a meat based diet. But but the, but remember that the real driver, and this is you know not everybody that invests in this asset class shares my view of this, but this is our view, is remember the real driver of global food demand is not the United States. It is the developing middle class around the world. And most of those people need more meat and protein in their diet, unlike your typical American who, frankly, probably needs less. Hmm. Um, And so we view, this is why we are long-term bullish on grains, more so than maybe others in the asset class. But, I mean, I'm a... You know, I, I went to the University of Illinois with an agriculture degree. I'm 55 years old. I've been doing this a long time. The global food demand story isn't about almonds. Yeah. It's about yeah. the primary food stuff. Now, but but look, almonds are great. We own a lot of them. <laughs> but but we just, we just don't want to be all almonds. We want to be this – we take this balanced diversification view of global food demand and try to match our investments so roughly think, to that. So this is – so we got a farmland – U.S. farmland is an indirect play on the emerging markets, it sounds like. So the growth of India, the growth of China, they catch up with the rest of the world. Or Where where do you see the, the – just the number of people, obviously, India is, is the big leader. And if they catch up on a per capita basis, is that one of the uh, the hopes that they they support this? Yeah, you, I mean, basically, what what drives global food demand is population growth, but more importantly, GDP per capita growth. 
And as you shift, you know, if you looked around, the, if you looked at kind of the cycle of, of, of how we and our diets change as our economic, uh, you know, economic circumstances change, the, the, the very poor of the world are very much a plant-based diet. And they're eating, uh, you know, they're eating rice, they're eating corn, they're eating wheat, and they're eating it in a very direct form. You know, possibly directly, possibly bread, but that's a huge percentage of their calories. As they get a little wealthier, they start to substitute those calories for more protein in particular. Meats, dairy, chicken is always where they go first, uh, but eventually pork and beef. And what happens is, just because of the metabolic rate of the animal itself, the amount of grain you consume if you consume grain directly as a person, or the amount of grain you essentially consume if you consume meat that has eaten grain, skyrockets. There's a huge multiplier effect. And so that, that shift to higher protein diets by that burgeoning middle class in China and India in particular um, really, really leads to increased grain demand. Now, as people's um, you know, economic circumstances continue to improve, they start to put back into their diet, and the United States and Western Europe are extreme examples of this, we need to, eat, we need to start eating, frankly, somewhat less meat and more vegetables and more fruits and, you know, more plant-based diets, and, and that's what happens. But there's that kind of trajectory through time, and the real driver is those people still trying to get more protein to improve the, you know, the ultimate quality of their diet. This has been a fascinating conversation. Paul Pittman, Farmland Partners. Any other places you want people to look for you for information about your, your REIT or any other final closing yeah, yeah. thoughts? You, you can, of course, go to our website. We've got an investor relations tab. It'll give you a great deal of detail about the company. And if anyone who listens to this podcast is, is particularly interested, frankly, feel free to reach out to me directly. Um, and I'm just Paul at farmlandpartners.com, and I'm happy to, to talk with you on the phone. Appreciate Paul. It's been a, it's been a great conversation. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Behind the Markets. I'm going to be talking with Brandon Zick of Sarah's Partners after the break, continuing their special focus on farmland. Uh, we'll be back after a short break. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. we got Professor Siegel calling in, uh, stranded from Toronto, Professor, with the snow. Um, but uh, we got you for a few minutes. What can, uh, is we got some volatility here towards the end of the week. The Fed hiked rates. we got Trump talking trade. Um, what's your, your general thoughts on, on what's going on? Wow, what a week. Yeah, and I finally did get back. Oh, good. <laughs> finally. Um, so, uh, first, I mean, first the Fed. Um, uh, number one, I, I, I thought uh, that Jay Powell did a great job. I was looking very closely at how he answered the questions in his command material um, for his first news conference, and I was impressed. Um, uh, he answers much shorter than Janet Yellen did, and that's one reason why it was a shorter. He answered as many questions in a much shorter time period, which was also good, and uh, basically gave the right answers. Uh, I did think that the uh, dot plot is pretty hawkish. Yes, there was not a median rise this year, but boy, there's an increase 2019 and 20. And, um, uh, you know, when you, you know, you talk about uh, in 2020, the Fed funds rate is you know, three six percent or something. I mean, above obviously it's long run, but you're also inverting the curve unless the ten year really goes up. Uh, so 
there's, you know, um, I think the market has, this is exactly what I said the market has to contend with uh, this year, and that is the, the uh, rising rates. Um, I mean, the 10-year the was 290 with the market volatility, went down to 280, it's 284 now. Uh, then, of course, the Trump package, um, and, uh, uh, you know, very honestly, uh, it, 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 it might be worth a try. We could argue about the means, but it would be great if we, if we did negotiate with the Chinese on intellectual property and then several other things that um, we could be selling there. Um, uh, it's too early to see what kind of retaliation there will be here. Um, the market, obviously, yesterday down 700 points is not happy, but right now today it's kind of uh, uh, mixed. Um, looks like a bad opening, but but is is mixed. There's a big a lot of question about whether we're getting a rotation now, with the Fang stocks are rotating into others, and uh, that might happen. And that's not bad, obviously. Um, if we do get a rotation, one thing I should say is how strong energy has been. We see oil uh, WTI today uh, at uh, 65 and 0.4. We also see a drop of the dollar. That's fear of retaliation. Actually, when you add tariffs, that uh, everything equal uh, causes appreciation of the dollar. So, um, but the fear of retaliation obviously could and and the Chinese making some veiled threats to sell securities. If if we start imposing tariffs, uh, this is sort of put the dollar under. Uh, just a little bit of uh, near-term uh, pressure. Um, as far as the debt, we got good durable goods data. First quarter, uh, which is going to end next week, is still looking at a slightly under two. Uh, not a disaster, but not great. We're going to get next week. We're going to get the um, final third reading on the the um, fourth quarter, which should be close to three uh, percent GDP. Um, so it's. Uh, it's- it's interesting I mean, how you've been been calling for you know volatility this year. You were spot on that you thought the market was way overshot and then get 10% pullback. You know Now we're basically flat to slightly down. I mean, do you have a view? Do you think we need to go 10% more or do you think we're, you know, we're sort of that volatility came out and now we're just sort of back towards our 0 to 10% returns that you basically were, were calling for? I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we certainly test the early February lows here, um, especially if there's a little bit of belligerence on... Uh, you know, direct retaliation by the Chinese, um, uh, uh, you know, and some other scares in, in, in that direction. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see it. I, I think when all is said and done, though, we, you know, I said zero to 10 percent. Um, and I mean, that that goes through the November elections, too. <laughs> so, you know, that, uh, that that the markets could just a lot of things on the plate, which is what I said last December. And I think that you know the I think the market's beginning to face it. Great earnings, but uh, rate uncertainty. Well, not uncertainty. I mean, it's going up, and yeah. the question is how fast. Uh, and the politics of the situation are so uncertain. Um, uh, you know, uh, Trump had threatened for a, f- a few hours to veto the the spending bill. Now he said, "I'm going to sign it." Um, <laughs> this sort of on and off, of course, the the musical chairs in in the White House about who's, you know, who's who's actually serving uh, whom there. Um, but as I said, um, you know, three weeks ago, I mean, the major bill was passed. Nothing else, much else. We did get that, you know, a moderation Dodd Frank. We knew we were going to get that. That that was good. 
and really, I, I say nothing else of any really big importance is going to pass for November. It's just going to be a stalemate waiting for the outcome of uh, the elections uh, there. So um, no infrastructure. You know, I was always one that said, all these people are talking about now it's a trillionaire infrastructure. Forget about that. That 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 just ain't going to happen. Well, very good. Thanks for calling in uh, in transit here. Thank you very much. Bye. We're, we're going to turn our conversation back to our focus on farming. We we had the first part of the conversation with a public farmland investor, but second part of the conversation, Brandon Zick of Sarah's Partners. Uh, he's the director of acquisitions and portfolio management at Sarah's Partners. Uh, he focused on managing all the assets of the firm's farm portfolio. He previously at Morgan Stanley Lehman Brothers. Got to know Brandon in Maine at, at Camp Kotak. We've had some fellow Camp Kotak uh, guests on the program. Brandon, thanks for joining us here. Thank you, Jeremy. Great to be here. Um, you heard, uh, I think you were listening into some of the discussion on farming generally on the first part of the program. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your background, where you grew up, how you got interested in sort of farming as an asset class, and, and sort of an intro to, to what you do at Saris. Sure. Yeah. Um, my exposure to farmland was actually very direct growing up. I grew up on a family dairy farm in northeastern Pennsylvania, and uh, you know that started an interest in farming that went away for quite a while as I spent time at Lehman Brothers and Morgan Stanley in New York. But having met our founding partner at Cirrus uh, back in 2008, uh, we started having some conversations. And then near the end of 2010, I became the first uh, investment staff here at Cirrus and moved from New York out to the Midwest. And so maybe sort of talk a little bit about Cirrus. Um, so what, what tell, tell us a little bit about how you're structured, what you look to do, sort of it's a private vehicle, so it's not a, you know, something that all public investors can invest in, but what is, what's the sort of the mission and, and how you think about building your, your farm portfolio? Yeah, and uh, to be honest, a lot of the, you know, the macro themes that Paul talked about earlier certainly ring true for us. Uh, what we've been trying to do is put together a large portfolio, uh, a really value-add portfolio, where we uh, don't necessarily compete with other institutions. And I think Paul mentioned the, the institutional penetration in this market is, is really low. One uh, to two percent is the best that anyone can, can really estimate. So given that, we tend to not run into other investors very often. In most cases, we find ourselves bidding against neighboring landowners or farmers, and uh, so, th- so that model is a little bit different than when you look at some of the things that maybe farmland partners or other large institutions are doing on the permanent crop side, where you tend to have a higher concentration of institutional investors. Our fund is not a typical private equity fund that was raised, and in, then in 10 years, everything's liquidated. It's an evergreen structure uh, where we look to make value-add acquisitions over time and continue to increase and grow the portfolio. So, you know, as a matter of reference, when I started in 2010, we had about 6,000 acres and $30 million worth of value in the portfolio. And today we have about 107,000 acres, uh, which is over 300 properties and just over $700 million in net asset value in the fund. It's interesting. And so do you, do you think about, is, is your sort of operating cash flows and sort of the investment thinking about it in, in a similar way as the, the REIT we talked about where he's doing a rental income? Like, how do you think about the sources of return that are you trying to own the farmland to get the, the cash flows from, you know, the different crops that you're growing or, and then hopefully to get the appreciation in the land? Or are you thinking about it in, in a sort of different way? Yeah. So we're, while I grew up grew up on a farm along with some of my other colleagues, uh, it is a land rental model. So we 
like any other real estate, we're really trying to make it on the buy side. We're not looking to direct operate the properties. We work with over 50 uh, very sophisticated, um, fantastic farm partners that own a lot of land themselves. They farm a lot of land on their own, and then they also rent on uh, multi-year leases all of our farmland. So in farmland, there really are three sources of return. Uh, Income is a big component, and we tend to be a very high cap rate buyer in this market. So we really don't look at any farms that cash flow on a current income basis at less than 5%. Uh, Paul had mentioned a number that surprises a lot of people, which is what what has farmland depreciation been over the last 60 years? And he quoted a number from the Chicago Fed at about 6.5% uh, annually. And while there may be some volatility in that number, uh, that really has been proven out over time. And then there's another component that when you're an active manager in a market that tends to be inefficient, either opportunistically or in this case just structurally inefficient, there is a lot of capability for value add. And we do a lot of that across the portfolio by taking farms that are in exist- currently in uh, crop production and improving their efficiency, improving their productivity through things like uh, adding irrigation, adding drainage tile, and other value-add projects you can do on a farm, which can tend to add, depending on the year, another 2 to 5% in total return. So we feel like, from our perspective, by owning the land and being a very active manager in making these value-add improvements, you don't need to take the crop risk to earn a sufficient return. So we leave that to our, our farmer partners that have a lot of experience in uh, agronomy, growing crops, and then marketing their crop. So when you think about the, you know, you mentioned there's only 2% institutional, you're not running into a lot of other funds like yourselves. How do you think, do you think that's going to change? I mean, maybe this, this show itself will bring more awareness to people out there listening and saying, hey, maybe I should be setting up a, a investment, uh, investment program here. I mean, but what, how, do, how do you see that, you, know, you think more people should be coming to this asset class? I mean, how do you see the future evolving? Yeah, we certainly think we will see more competition over time. Um, There was a a lot of talk uh, back in 2012 and 2013 when uh, commodity prices were much higher and grain prices specifically. That led to a lot of interest in what's going on in agriculture. Um, Being a a contrarian investor is never easy. So now in our third year of lower grain prices, this actually is when people should be looking to invest in this market. Um, but it takes, it's very difficult to do. Uh, it's not like timber, for instance, where the majority of the land uh, of the forest were owned by large end users like International Paper or Georgia Pacific, so that when pension funds and endowments and other institutional investors wanted exposure to that asset class, there were a number of very large landholders that they could buy that asset from. Farmland has a totally and especially within our footprint, it has a totally different um, kind of genesis. Uh, the genesis of farmland in the Midwest or farmland ownership is the family farm. And as those family farms have grown over time, they haven't created any more land. It's been other families that have stopped act- actively farming and sold their farms. So uh, Paul was looking for the number of the percentage of the population that uh, is actively farming, and it's less than 1%. And mm. You know, more, over 50 years ago, or close to 50 years ago, it was close to 40% of the population had some uh, agricultural 
I guess, task in mind. So it, it's something that's changed over time, and it's very difficult if, if an institution comes into the space to put 100 or 200 or 300 million to work in one transaction or even in a year if you don't have the, the contacts and the connections to source a lot of this land. Because although you know, Paul's fund is for sale every day on the New York Stock Exchange, uh, all the land that we buy, we have to source you know, privately or through localized public auctions. And, and that's something that it's difficult but it's what creates the opportunity in an inefficient market. Yeah, it's very, it's a very interesting. I mean, you talk about sort of farming being unique, and I'm, I'm sort of wondering the people who look at your your private fund. How do you think? Where do you think the money's coming from? Um, certainly, it has you know an element of inflation hedging. It's sort of this alternative asset, um, but it's also sort of like a real estate investment because you got the rental income, but rental income tied to this uh, this uh, this additional farm connection. I mean, do, are people doing this instead of commodities? Are they doing it instead of real estate? How do you, how do you think people ought to use it or, or are using it? Yeah, I think, you know, because the asset class isn't necessarily in an, in everyone's asset allocation model, it really comes down to the, the CIO to decide where it fits. And yeah. our investor base is, is made up of, it started off as a friends and family fund with high net worth individuals, and it's migrated to uh, more institutions like college endowments and charitable foundations, uh, both large and small, single and multifamily offices. And, and what we found is that every CIO has a different view on where it fits. So some may have looked at it because of the high current income as a fixed income substitute over the last seven or eight years. Um, a lot of it, CIOs do have real asset uh, allocations within their portfolio. And this would be something that would fit well in a real asset portfolio right next to commercial real estate, energy, or if they're doing something on the commodity side, land is going to be much, or farmland specifically, will be much less volatile than what you'd see from a CTA. So what investors generally are looking for, income is a big component of it. We actually use income cap rates as our buy signal in our financial models. So if we can't buy a farm, that can cash flow at a 5% plus cap rate, we usually don't buy it. Hmm. Uh, so that's a good a good disciplined approach to, to buying land, and that's why when we attend a public auction, we're losing 90% of the time in terms of not buying the farm. And uh, when we look at private transactions, we're very particular. We're looking for the highest cash flowing farms. With land, you really... You, you shouldn't have a lot of volatility. Uh, in most cases, these are, you know, dirt is what we own. It's not portable. It's not going to disappear. Uh, there's only so much you can do with it in terms of uh, harming it. So there really should be no big drops in value. Um, and what one thing that differentiates us from a public re is simply that, and something that some of the larger institutions uh, look for in this asset class is diversification and non-correlation with the public markets. Yeah. And it's one of the things we've thought about it as we've thought, should we become a public REIT? Well, many of our larger institutional clients really don't have much interest in that because, you know, while our portfolio has been appreciating and gaining in value over time, if you see a big move in the equity markets, our view is regardless of what the underlying asset is, if it can be traded like an equity up or down, it will trade that way. So I think you'd see... Uh, something in our fund that's a little different is a lot less volatility. And as you mentioned before, inflation protection is a big part of the strategy that I think 
over the last four or five years people haven't thought much about. But I, I believe now with the rates going up, there's going to be a lot more talk about it. And it doesn't take much inflation on an annual basis through compounding uh, to really devalue assets. So you, it's very beneficial to have an asset with this type of positive correlation with inflation. We're talking with Brandon Zick of Sarah's Partners. Um, we just sort of talked about how to think about farmland as an addition to portfolios. Um, and so, Brandon, one of the things about Sarah's Partners is, is obviously a private fund. It really targeted after institutions, high net worth, but also talking to family offices. Um, would you, if you think about that client base and expanding that institutional client base, how, what what's the profile of say you know when when it's a private fund, you got to have minimums, and you know how, when you think about working with different RAs, family offices, how should people want to work with Sarah's, how do they have to think about that as uh, getting involved with you guys? Yeah, so we're, we're open to accredited investors, and, uh, you know, we can take, typically the folks who are coming into our fund are a million dollars plus in terms of uh, what they're willing to invest. Our largest client is over $50 million in our fund, so it's a, it's a diverse client base. Uh, we do believe that farmland in general, and in any way, shape, or form, whether it's direct ownership of land through a public REIT, uh, through a fund like ours or others, is really beneficial in a portfolio context. And because there are some real macro drivers behind what will increase farmland value over time, and they're the big ones, like Paul Pittman had mentioned earlier, the, the need for more food, the growing population. So we think, and, and my belief is, you know, owning farmland in any way, shape, or form is a benefit for folks' portfolio. It's just very difficult to do if you're sitting at a desk in New York or an office building, even in Chicago. Uh, land is a real asset, and you actually have to own it. And that's why we're based right in the Midwest. Um, and you know, the 10 states we operate in right now are highly concentrated in the eastern Corn Belt. And it's something that myself, along with all the other portfolio managers that are here, spend a lot of time uh, looking at properties on the farm, meeting with our farm tenants, because that's where these excess returns can be generated from actually being on the ground. Yeah, you can see the difference in the inefficiencies where you know the people, it's hard to get access to the, it's, it's sort of your typical private equity, where the private equity managers think they, where they can add value, it's sort of sourcing deals, adding value that way. Um, it's, it's an interesting asset class compared to the other standard commodity plays that, that people are doing here. Do you, do you have a particular segment of the farm where you're trying to, to put more investments to? Is it, is it just generally sort of a diversified portfolio or are you, are you concentrating in, in certain areas because you think there's more, more appreciation potential on some of those farms? And we only have about four, three to four minutes left. Sure. Yeah, we, we have a, a real focus on row crops or annual crops. So uh, whereas if you're investing in vineyards and uh, orchards, whether it's apple, almonds, et cetera, uh, pecans, your asset in that case is really a biological asset. It's the plant. It's the vine. It's the tree. Uh, it's not the land itself. And if you're looking at a, a pistachio orchard, for instance, the value of the land may be ten dollars or $12,000 an acre, but the value of the trees are four or five times that easily. And, and that's a different profile than, uh, than just owning dirt. So in most cases, we own land. Uh, we're heavily concentrated east of the Mississippi. Uh, we like water as a long-term investment theme. If you like agriculture, you have to like water. So uh, we like to be in places not just with paper water rights, but with plentiful rainfall and uh, abundant aquifers. So we're over half irrigated. Uh, we love to grow grains like corn and soybeans and wheat, but we have a high percentage of annual specialty crops too. So those are higher revenue crops that increase 
uh, the amount of rent we can earn on a farm and increase the value of the land. And those are grown when you think of tomatoes or potatoes, you might not think of Indiana and Michigan and Ohio, but there's a lot of that produced here. And um, so we focus a lot on that. Typically, we're trying to buy a farm that is not necessarily turnkey. We want to be able to do that value add and create the highest and best use. And because we're an active manager of the ground, we do everything not just from uh, the leasing and trying to generate high farm revenues. We're really looking to maximize the revenue on that property period. So we pursue oil and gas leases. We've got a lot of renewable energy in the portfolio in terms of wind turbines and uh, solar options on our on our land. Uh, we own ground in places with plentiful oil and gas resources that we pursue that as well. So it, it's really a, a total return strategy that we focus on. And we source the majority of our farms privately. So as we started right here in Indiana and southern Michigan, we've continued to grow out that uh, base of tenant farmers who source a lot of the land for us themselves. So unlike a private equity deal where an investment bank will call you and send out a bid sheet to everyone who's interested in considering it, most of the time or two-thirds of the time, we're buying a farm without any competition. Mm -hmm. It's simply negotiating with the landowner themselves. And a lot of that comes through these long-term tenant relationships that we've built. So anybody listening on Sirius XM, you know, want to contact Brandon. Brandon, any where people should find you anywhere to find out more about Sirius Partners and, and what you're doing? Any uh, information we give people to how to how to find you? Certainly. Yeah, we're a private fund, but we do have a website with a lot of information about our properties and some contact information. It's uh, SiriusPartners.com. So uh, you can get my email right off of there, and I'd be happy to talk to anybody. Very good. Brandon, it's uh, an excellent conversation. Are you going back to Camco Talk this year? Yes, I intend to catch more fish this year. Yeah, so it was a, it was a looking forward to it. It was a great experience. Hopefully I will see you there again. Um, you've been listening to Behind the Markets. Thanks to our two guests, Paul Pittman and Brandon Zick. Uh, really interesting discussion on commodities, farmland, agriculture. Uh, thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, sound engineer today, De- uh, not Dion Simpkins. Um, thanks, everybody. You can listen to us on the Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. Insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.